This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 100, July the 3rd, 1985. I'd like to begin this afternoon with some comments about a book by Ernest Pavel, I believe, P-A-W-E-L, entitled The Nightmare of Reason, A Life of Franz Kafka, K-A-F-K-A. Kafka has been very influential in the modern world. His dates roughly are from the first half of the 1880s to the uh, first half of the 1920s, as I recall it. When I went to the university, all the avant-garde students were reading Kafka, and you were really not a part of the elite if you did not rhapsodize over Kafka's writings. I tried reading them and found them unreadable. I was interested, therefore, in this biography published in... uh, 1984 by Farrar Strauss Giraud in New York. I wanted to understand a little more about Kafka, whose existentialism met the temper of college students for a good many years in this country and all over the world. Kafka's home was Prague, He came from a Jewish family of some affluence. He gained a great deal of fame as a writer, especially after his death, but was highly regarded before his death. He died of tuberculosis. The book is written by a man whose perspective is somewhat Freudian, and of course, Kafka's outlook was also Freudian. We are today too prone to speak of uh, Freud as being Viennese in his outlook and reflecting the culture of his time, Viennese and Jewish. The fact is, by his own admission, Freud gained his main ideas from Robertson Smith of Britain, whose religion of the Semites framed the world outlook for Freud. Sir James Fraser, another British uh, scholar, also had a profound influence on Freud. The sad part is that uh, Smith's book, The Religion of the Semites, has also had an even greater influence in the church because Smith wrote as a radically modernist churchman. His work led to the radical uh, perversion of Old Testament religion. It led to an advanced kind of antinomianism And it led to the perspective that unfortunately today governs almost all Old Testament teaching. It was Smith's religion of the Semites that uh, framed 
the outlook for Freud when he said that the three basic drives or instincts in man were the will to incest with mothers, the will to parasite to kill the fathers, and the will to cannibalism to eat the fathers. And for Smith, this governed his perspective on almost everything in the Bible, including the communion service. Well, this kind of thinking permeated the world of Kafka's day, so that we need not assume that the influence came directly from Freud. It was common to Western civilization at that time. The author uh, makes one mistake, I believe, immediately when it speaks of uh, the grandfather of Kafka, Jacob Kafka, born in 1814, was the second of nine children, six boys and three girls raised in a one-room shack in the Czech village of Wosek. Under the law then in force, he was not permitted to marry. A 1789 decree promulgated to curb the growth of the Jewish population barred any but the oldest son of Jewish parents from obtaining a marriage license. And Jacob had a stepbrother older by a year. What saved him from dying without legitimate progeny, death twice over in the context of his faith, was the revolution of 1848, or rather its savage repression. At any rate, he goes on to say that this led to the end of the old laws. Now, this law did exist. The author is correct in that respect. But what he apparently does not realize that this kind of law was not restricted to the Jews. In other words, it was not a racial law. Peasants and serfs were subjected to the same kind of population control in more than one country and certainly throughout Central Europe. The reason for this was not racial, it was not elitism except indirectly. Basic to it was the fact of mercantilism, a controlled economy. Mercantilism came in with the modern age. And whenever you have the control of an economy, you have the control of people, sooner or later. In Red China, of course, they are requiring families to have only one child. I would be willing almost to bet that if you studied carefully the reality of the situation in China, you would find that the elite Marxist rulers are not bound by that law, that they have more than one children, just as it was in the days of Kafka's grandfather. The laws restricting uh, people to one child were primarily for the poor and minority groups. And it was applied to them because the feeling was there are too many of these poor people around. 
we cannot have more than so many. I am mentioning this with a reason. I believe that we are moving into the same kind of population control simply because we are increasingly have a, having a control of the economy. Two states within the U.S. have had measures introduced more than once to restrict all families to two children. These measures have thus far not gotten out of committee, but the fact is there is a growing movement to impose that kind of legislation on us. I may have mentioned that one young mother who comes from a Chalcedon fellowship had a baby not too long ago, her first. The doctor, in having her sign the papers, had prepared papers on her admission to have her tubes tied so she could have no more children. This was her first child. She was quite indignant about that and said no, she as a Christian wanted several children. During the rest of her stay in that hospital she was treated not only shabbily but very harshly. So if you have economic controls you get sooner or later to direct people controls. This was the situation with regard to Kafka's family. At the same time, there was an increasing control of education and of the church. This in realms that were Catholic. The church was a captive. The goal was very simple. The modern state was beginning to develop, and its goal was very simply this, to create a national state with a unity that would replace the church. As a result, the Habsburgs mandated the adoption of German names and surnames, and required the use of German in all legal uh, uh, documents and certificates, and made everyone, Jews included, subject to compulsory military service. Now this was a part of the equalitarian philosophy of the time. Its purpose was to make all equally subject to the state, to break down the old divisions. The ghetto system was something other than people imagine it today because the state wants to get credit for everything it does. Under the ghetto system, and the ghetto was not restricted to Jews, any minority group of considerable number could have within the framework of the country its own laws, its own government, and its own territory. The ghetto was an area which was ruled by Jewish law or Czech law or whatever the minority group was. Well, to go on with Kafka. Kafka's problem was that he was essentially a masochist. The author, Powell, 
points out, although he is very pro-Kafka, that Kafka was always straining for discontentment. He had mastered what the author calls, and I quote, the strategy of dying in life, unquote. He was a masochist to the core. Again, to quote the author, he was, I quote, a past master at the art of losing, unquote. He was vicious in his condemnation of his father and in what he said about his father, but to his dying day he was dependent upon his father, lived in his father's home, even when for a brief time, and he was for some years a very uh, highly respected bureaucrat whose ideas had been effective in... Uh, enabling the bureaucracy to function better. He, nonetheless, even though for a time he had an apartment, would spend most of his time at his parents, eat there, submit to the routine there, and then complain endlessly at how much he suffered at his father's hands. He was thoroughly a masochist. He had a strong element of sadism, a great deal of self-contempt. He had a hatred of his body and of sex, a fanatical hatred. He felt that it was his duty to marry, but every time he approached the point where he had to propose to a girl, he would write a long letter giving page after page of reasons why, if she had any common sense, she would not marry him. When it became apparent that he did have TB and was dying, he regarded it as his salvation from marriage. He felt it was, in his own words, unbearable living with anyone. And yet, he refused always to separate himself from his parents. In a moment of honesty, he told a girl who uh, expressed an interest in reading his books uh, this statement, I quote, You're much too healthy, Irma. You won't understand this, unquote. Well, the uh, book is very revealing as a glimpse into the life of his times, the culture of his times. It's also interesting on one aspect of life in Austro-Hungarian uh, territories. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is very much despised today as a failure. Of course, every nation that goes under is given nothing but contempt by scholars who become wise after the fact, and so they condemn it. But the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire has been a disaster, the effects of which we are still feeling. 
the Austro-Hungarian Empire maintained peace between very diverse peoples, kept them relatively happy. It also made for the peace of Central Europe. Because Central Europe and part of the Balkans has since World War I and the breakup of the empire been no longer unified by that empire, it has been an area out of which all kinds of crises and wars have come. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was a political necessity. If one hadn't existed, it should have been invented. Moreover, in spite of the abuse historians have given it, it was, by and large, a prosperous realm. For example, as the author states, and I quote, between 1903 and 1913, agricultural productivity increased by 85%, and industrial output rose by about 77%. The rise in industrial wages outstripped the increase in the cost of living. The currency was stable and remained so until 1914. The 1907 Austrian budget closed with the biggest surplus in the nation's history. Well, this tells us that there was something good about the empire, that it was certainly, to some degree, highly successful. Now, I want to make a comparison here because I'm going to follow this up with something else. We are today economically successful. We have the world's major economy. But what would happen tomorrow if we collapsed? Everyone would, after the fact, wipe out every good thing in this country and see only the collapse. And that was the case with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Its weakness was not in its administration. It was reasonably good. Its weakness was not in the abuse of minority peoples. It leaned over backwards to be fair to them, and progressively so. Its failure was military. Let me read something that Pavel has written, which I think says it as well as some books have done by the chapter. He says of what happened when war broke out in 1914. These corseted bedroom politicians were still living in the era of the Congress of Vienna and had based their strategy, such as it was, on notions that bore no relation to the realities of 20th century warfare. The crack Hungarian cavalry regiments in their conspicuous operetta costumes were thrown into battle in massed formation across open plains to spearhead the drive into Russia. But instead of scimitar-wielding Turks, they found themselves facing concentrated fire from British-made machine guns. 
a radically innovative addition to the technology of death that not only wiped out the flower of the Austrian army, but put an end to the inane romance of cavalry charges. And the Russians were quick to follow up on their initial successes. Cossack units routed the demoralized Austrian infantry, and by the end of August the Tsarist armies had occupied Galicia, the Bukovina, as well as parts of Moravia, and seemed poised for a drive on Budapest, Prague, and even Vienna. Strict censorship, the one phase of operation in which the military proved effective, suppressed any and all mention of these disasters. But the arrival of thousands of mostly Jewish refugees from the East was bound to generate rumors in the heartland, and after the fall of Galicia in early September, the Austrian general staff saw fit to issue its first communique of the war, a masterpiece of reverse double-talk. Such Austrians have still believed their armies to be headed straight for Moscow. We're now informed that Lvov is still in our hands. Even more humiliating, though, and their symbolic implications were the Austrian defeats at the hands of tiny Serbia. Far from smoking out the sanctuary of terrorists, the Austrians were beaten back with heavy losses all along the line. Again, there was no official word about the fiasco, but large blank spaces on the front pages told part of the story, and even the most euphoric of patriots could scarcely fail to note the absence of victory bulletins. Well, he goes on to deal with the fact that Austria, militarily, was a lost cause. And with that fact, everybody was ready to turn on it and to plan for the end of the war and revolution. Austria's problem was that its leadership was still fighting wars of a previous generation. And they were living in the age of machine guns and planes. The United States is living like Austria. We are still thinking in terms of the last war. And things have changed since then. And we still think in terms of old-fashioned gentlemanly conducts in war, declarations of war, formalities, diplomats exchanging notes. And we are preparing ourselves for the same kind of grim disaster that faced the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And today, scarcely anyone remembers all the greatness and the goodness of that empire, its peacekeeping powers, and its importance to the history of civilization. On briefly to another book, uh, two or three older books I'm going to touch on, because I was checking on a few points, and I ran across these books and uh, found them 
important. This is Arthur Voice, V-O-Y-C-E, Moscow and the Roots of Russian Culture. And a basic idea in Russian history has been the Third Rome idea, something I've read about repeatedly since I was a student. The belief of a great many Russians is that the first Rome is gone, the second Rome was Byzantium, and that's gone, and now Moscow has become the third Rome, and as such will be the country of the future, a Rome that shall never disappear. At the same time, the doctrine of the ruler underwent a change. The concept of the ruler uh, was such that it was held in the so-called Josephite doctrine, which established a close union between church and state, and declared, and I quote, the Tsar was similar to humans only by nature, but by the authority of his rank similar to God. He derived his authority directly from God, and his judgment could not be overruled by that of any prelate, unquote. This kind of thinking in a secularized form is still present in Russia and has joined hands with Marxism. The uh, data in this book on the daily life of Russians in ancient times is very interesting. One visitor said that uh, the, the Russians were so hardy that to live among them and try to keep up with them was a way of committing suicide. They said, moreover, uh, no one but the Russians could remain standing for such long hours at church services and remain almost without food during the seven weeks of Lent. Incidentally, let me say, no one has ever kept Lent as the Russians used to keep it. They did virtually starve themselves. In fact, before Lent was over, all the pious had night blindness. Like a chicken, they could not see after dark. Their diet kept them so uh, low in vitality and so malnourished before the period of Lent was over that they lost the ability of night vision. As Voice point out, points out, their concept of charity was a peculiar one. Uh, charity for them was not a means of fighting social ills, but rather a pious activity necessary for the salvation of one's soul. Well, so much for that. Now on to another older book that I was using and uh, found some things in that I thought I'd share. The 
book is uh, by W. H. Fremantle, The World as the Subject of Redemption. Eight lectures delivered before the University of Oxford in the year 1883. These were the Bampton Lectures. The book is excellent because it gives us an emphasis that has waned in recent years. And as Reconstructionists, we want to see revived. He called attention to the fact that our Lord and the Apostles set forth a worldwide society to transform all other societies. The goal was a Christian world under Christ. It was the conquest of the world for Christ and for his order that they sought. He defines theocracy quite accurately as not the rule of priests or of the church, but of the Christian people of God using God's law. He speaks of the family and its significance, has some excellent things to say here. For example, and I quote, in the New Testament, we find the family life recognized as the natural abode of the gospel spirit and becoming, to use the words of St. Paul, the church which is in the house. Our Lord, said Clement of Alexandria, said that where two or three were gathered in his name, there was the true church. Who are these two or three but the father, the mother, and the child? Fremantle says that the life of a people is chiefly in their laws. And if they are not serving God and his law, they are serving other gods. It's an excellent book, well worth reading if you can locate it. Then to another older book, which I just reread this past week, and found was as good as when I first read it as a student, not an assigned work, but one which I read in connection with church history. In fact, a number of books which I read by Herbert B. Workman, W-O-R-K-M-A-N, were all equally outstanding. This particular one is Persecution in the Early Church. This was reprinted by the Oxford University Press in 1980 and may still be in print. But at any rate, the point that uh, Workman brought out very, very powerfully was that the early church was dominion-oriented. And he says, and I quote, the Christians were not pers persecuted because of their creed, but because of their universal claims, unquote. Quote further, this universality of claim, this aggressiveness of temper, was this consciousness from the first of worldwide dominion. 
Unquote. So the early church was dominion-oriented, and we cannot understand the early church apart from that fact. He gives an excellent analysis of the meaning of religion to the Romans, why they opposed and persecuted the Christians. He deals with the charges against Christians, the refusal of many to serve in the military, uh, who, and their ground was, all Christians are priests, and therefore exempt. Workmen called attention to the fact that the best emperors were the worst persecutors. After all, they were most concerned with efficiency, most concerned with the unity of the empire, and for them the Christians were an impediment. Therefore, they had to be eliminated. Occasionally, a corrupt and degenerate emperor like Nero would resort to persecution. But by and large, the more degenerate they were, the less they bothered anyone. They were too eager to uh, be involved only in their own depravities. Workman calls attention to the fact of how many, many people were martyred. Today, the tendency is to reduce it to next to nothing and to treat the whole thing as a myth. Workman gives you evidence of the horrifying character of the extent of the persecution. It's a very fine book. Almost anything by Workman is. Then another older work, and as you can see, these tend to go under the area of church and state. I was satisfying my curiosity on some points and went back to these books. This was published by Princeton University Press in 1964 by the author Gaines Post, P-O-S-T, Studies in Medieval Legal Thought, Public Law on the State, 1100 to 1322. It's an excellent analysis of the development of the doctrine of reasons of state, whereby step by step the state made itself the law, as it were, able to justify any step it took in terms of uh, the reasons of state. In fact, as he points out, a decretalist said, and I quote, So great is the power of the prince that his will is taken for reason. Unquote. We have this strand with us today in that, as I have pointed out in some of my writings, the modern state sees itself as reason incarnate. Hegel certainly strengthened this trend in Western thought. It goes back to Plato and Aristotle. So the doctrine of reasons of state was heavily used uh, against the church. And step by step, the church was pushed back. The state, moreover, 
fostered naturalism and a naturalistic outlook to undermine the church. The state presented itself as the supreme moral entity. This kind of thinking on the part of men within the church who were the puppets of civil authorities as well as the civil authorities themselves went from one extreme to another. As far back as Henry II of England, the idea of nature and the state as the expression of nature and of reason was pushed to the point that, as Gainsborough says, and I quote, Henry II of England may at one moment have reached the logical conclusion what nature permitted him to do was not unlawful, unquote. This kind of thinking, of course, is exactly what we have today and what the Kinsey reports set forth. Because the whole point of the Kinsey reports was that anything that occurs in nature, any perversion, is natural and therefore moral. Nothing that occurs in nature can be condemned. The only things that could be condemned for Kinsey were things that went against nature, like Christianity. And therefore, he said, more harm is done to little girls who are molested by the parents and churchmen who tell the child how terrible this is than by the molester. In fact, he saw nothing wrong with child molestation. Now, this is the kind of thinking that went into the making of the modern state. So we should not be surprised by what is happening. The only thing that should surprise us is, first, that it took so long. It had to be, without question, the labors and patience and battle of many, many churchmen that kept this thing in abeyance. Second, it's a sad surprise that so many churchmen now are party to this kind of evil. Catholic and Protestant churchmen are ready to espouse statism as the answer to all the world's ills and problems. It's a distressing picture. But so much the worse for them in the long run. Now to another book, a recently published one, Christopher Hibbert, H-I-B-B-E-R-T, Rome, the Biography of a City, published in 19... 85, by W. W. Norton, New York and London. It's a history of Rome, not the best, but an interesting one, well written. One of the things that any book on Rome reminds us of is that Rome was a kind of Washington, D.C. 
Because it was a world center, or the world center, it was a place of welfareism. And most people there had no desire to work. Their feeling was that the world and the church should support them. Hibbert says on page 202, the population of the city, which had numbered about 80,000 in 1563 and 118,356 in 1621, had now risen to about 150,000, according to a census taken in 1709, and was to rise again to 167,000 before the century was over. The residents were almost outnumbered by the tourists and pilgrims. It was estimated on the basis of the extra bread baked in the city's ovens that there were some 100,000 visitors in 1700. And a census kept by the large hospice of uh, San Trinita dei Pellegrini indicates that in the holy year of 1750, no less than 134 thousand six hundred and three pilgrims stayed at that hospice alone. Many of Rome's residents were officials, and many more were priests. The 1709 census listed 2,646 priests and 5,370 monks, nuns, and other religious. And there seemed more than this, since it was fashionable for men to dress as though they were in holy orders, even though they were not. Everyone in Rome, said Casanova, himself persuaded to adopt the attire, was either a priest or trying to look like one. Nor did it seem great, though their numbers were, that there were too many ecclesiastics to serve the extraordinary number of religious houses in Rome. There were 240 monasteries, 73 convents, 23 seminaries, and nearly 400 churches, including those used by foreigners. The Germans' Church of Santa Maria dell'Anima, the Poles' San Stanislao, the Spaniards' Santa Maria and Montserrato, the Portuguese' San Antonio, and the French' St. Luigi dei Franceschi. Francesci. To most visitors, it seemed astonishing that so many of those who were evidently not priests appeared to be quite content to pass their lives in utter idleness, thanks to the official board of charities and the sustenance provided by religious foundations and the richer families. If homeless, they could enter papal workshops where between meals they sat with their arms folded or they could seek shelter in one of the city's many refuges, where provided they moved on after one night, their clothes were mended and their shoes cobbled. If ill, they would be visited, nursed, and brought food by the Fata Benefratelli of San Giovanni di Deo, or they would be given a bed in one of Rome's numerous hospitals, perhaps the vast San Spirito, where beside walls hung with paintings, they would be entertained with musical concerts. If leprous, they would be cared for at San Gallicano and Trastevere. 
if mad at Santa Maria della de Pieta, if too young or too old to look after themselves at the Ospizio di San Michele, where orphaned girls were given a dowry when they, were when they left. Injured children were looked at another place, pregnant women at the San Rocco, where their names would be kept secret if they so wished. The unemployed could always earn ample pocket money by begging, and so on and on the author recounts all the ways they had of getting around working. The people in Rome, all of them, were well aware of the fact that uh, the world uh, was coming and going and could be milked. It was also characteristic of all churchmen and non-churchmen that they sought to impress people with their knowledge. And he says uh, at one point, and I quote, it was entirely in the tradition of Roman religion that a preacher should conclude his sermon on the virtues of fasting with a recipe for grilled cod, unquote. <laughs> Disorders were commonplace everywhere. The Romans were a lawless group. They went to church to see people and to enjoy themselves, and foreigners coming to Rome were horrified by what went on. And uh, everywhere people were interested in being seen and seeing and in eating. Uh, snacks were had everywhere. There was n no place that was immune to going to sitting and snacking. And uh, lightest kinds of snacks were taken to church. And dishes of ice cream were eaten in enormous quantities, even in church, by rich and poor alike. Foreigners tended to be upset by the disrespect of Romans for the faith. One interesting thing this book uh, showed me a fact I had not been previously aware of. At the Council of Constance, 1215, as I recall it, the division of the church and the three popes battling one against the other was ended by the rulers. The last thing the rulers wanted was a strong church. As a matter of fact, both the Avignon uh, captivity of the church, as it is called, plus the two and then three popes that mark the church, uh, came about to a large degree because of state intervention, state attempts to control the church, and also those of the Roman mobs. As a result, when the Emperor Sigismund and the other rulers ended the schism, they did not want a good pope. The last thing they wanted was a reformer. Now, whether 
Wycliffe's ideas were good or bad, the real reason for executing him, as far as the rulers were concerned, and they were primarily responsible for it. One prominent Catholic theologian gave Huss a clean bill of health. But Huss, Jerome of Prague, and Wycliffe were all anathema because they were for reform. It wasn't that some of their ideas were perhaps wrong or perhaps weren't. The real issue was reform was not wanted by the emperor or the various monarchs. They did not want a powerful church undercutting the growth of statist power. As a result, they made sure from Constance on virtually that the popes were not good men. And you had a succession of popes of very poor character. The Borgia popes are better known, but that does not mean they were the worst. As a result, the popes, to play it safe, whether they were uh, good or bad, realized they could not get involved in politics or in religion. That was a no-no. They then involved themselves in the world of art, and Rome was made into the art center of the world. Well, of course, this is something I've... Uh, developed and written about in some contexts, but what I did not realize was how long this persisted after the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. Not every pope, but the overwhelming majority of them continued as patrons of the arts. This was their major function, and they let Catholic monarchs control the churches within their realms and did as little as possible to concern themselves with the faith. Not that there were not exceptions, but this was usually the case. After Napoleon, this ended. The church could no longer afford the luxury of being absent from the world of religion and politics. It became a question of life and death. And so you had the steady... Uh, growth of Catholic conservatism and in a spirit of independence. It came to expression, especially in Leo XIII and its successors up through Pius XII. But uh, Napoleon did the Church a favor in that while there were continuations and uh, the papacy was very early interested in motion pictures because of its concern for the arts. It was a minor factor after Napoleon. Well, there's a great deal more in this book that uh, is of interest and delightful. Let me read you something about the theater in Rome. This was not uncommon all over Europe, but uh, 
it was a little worse in uh, Rome. I quote, It is the fashion here to regard the theater as a place for meeting people and paying social calls, wrote an English visitor. Instead of listening to the music, they all laugh and talk as though they were at home. This is prior to the revolution. This naturally did not encourage a happy relationship between the audiences, who armed themselves with rotten fruit in the expectation of having to pelt the performers, and the cast who were always ready to retaliate, as the actors at the Capranica did more than once with broken tiles and stones. In the boxes where the chairs were set around gaming tables and servants stumbled about with wine and refreshments, the uproar was often so continuous as it was in the pit where the audience sat on benches, shouting to each other, eating, drinking, and knocking over the candles by which those few who had come for the performance vainly tried to follow the score. But usually when arias began, the whole house fell into silence as the voice of the principal singers filled the theater. The voices of the singers playing female parts were always those of castrati, and so on, unquote. So, <laughs> the theater was a lively place. You could go there, but you might get hit with tile thrown back by the actors or rotten fruit if someone in the audience was not entirely sober when he threw at an actor. Hardly the most uh, entertaining of uh, places. Well, our time is almost up. Thank you for being with us again. It's always a joy to uh, visit with you. Let me remind you of Workman's book. I think it may still be available in paperback, but any of Workman's books from a library or a used bookstore is likely to be good reading. I know that I read a number of them in the 30s and 40s and found them very rewarding. Well, thank you for listening, and God be with you and bless you.